0: Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at The Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is February 23rd, 2023. We hope some of you enjoyed the early dose of spring or summer weather, as we're seeing in the D.C. area, or are able to easily dig out from the snowstorm that has impacted many in the rest of the U.S., Matt seemingly brought the summer weather back to us from Orlando, where he was covering the Association for Accessible Medicine's Access Conference, an event for generics industry executives. One of the things the trade group used the event for was to create more awareness of their value to U.S. consumers.
1: Right, Matt? Absolutely. They uh, they feel uh, uh, undervalued and underappreciated. Uh, um, I think everyone did enjoy the uh, the warm weather there, uh, um, but it uh, um wasn't much of a, a respite in terms of for sort of kind of what was uh, discussed as an industry they feel uh, fairly uh, squeezed by wholesalers and PBMs and uh, you know don't uh, don't think that sort are of kind of the the cheap drugs that they are uh, um, producing are actually sort of, kind of uh, delivering the cheapness that uh, um, consumers appreciate so they're actually uh, um, rolling out a social media campaign to get people to think about what uh, what might happen if the generic industry were, were uh, squeezed out of existence and uh, it's kind of an interesting approach it, it encourages people to uh think about other things that they take for granted uh, you know be that uh, uh mexican food or uh, uh aging relatives or uh, um, <laughs> other uh, um other aspects of life that you don't have to kind of uh, reflect upon too much and then uh, you know for every video that uh, um you know people put up the uh, um the association will make a medicine donation and so uh the idea is that they kind of sort of, kind of get uh, people in a uh, reflective mind, re- 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 excuse me, reflective frame of mind and, uh, you know, sort of feeling good about themselves and then sort of kind of uh, use that uh, um, emotional response to uh, get them to think about what they appreciate about uh, generic drugs. And, uh, um, you know, I think they're right that sort of people, you know, that they think about generic drugs are usually just kind of confused when, you know, the shape and color of their pills change at the pharmacy. Uh, So it's uh, um, uh, kind of a challenge. And I think sort of of what uh, the generic firms would most like people to think about is like, oh, wow, you know, this week, this month, my uh, prescription is so much cheaper because this uh, product went generic. But those are, um, you know, kind of few and far between. And obviously, we're going to win. Something goes generic. It's not the profound price drop that, uh, um, you know, it is eventually sort of once more uh, generics come into the market after 180 day, day, 180 day exclusivity uh, um, uh, wraps up so it's a uh, um, it's it's kind of a challenge to sort of kind of separate themselves from the negative feelings that people feel about uh, uh, brand drugs and that sort of kind of uh, you know uh, um, the way that pharmacy tiering is sort of kind of uh, starting to play out that uh, generics worry that they don't uh, get the most favorable cost treatment because they don't give the rebates that uh, um, that brand firms uh, um, do in many cases, so uh, um, they need to figure out a way to get the public to associate them with uh, value, and then to sort of kind of use that association to sort of, kind of get the policy changes they want that will sort of uh, keep them sustainable as a business. And it, you know, it's not an impossibility, but that seems like a a hard a hard road to walk down, just sort of given the uh, demands that everyone has for their time and through sort of kind of the um, the complicated message that that's for kind of entails uh, in, in to uh, um, to tell people. So uh, um, they're launching this campaign. They've got uh, you know Mark Cuban, who's sort kind of the uh, the entrepreneur that people know as the uh, Dallas Mavericks owner or the uh, Shark Tank uh, TV star. So uh, um, you know he should uh, um, help get some uh, um, buzz going if uh, they can sort of kind of leverage. Uh, um, uh, him in the right way he's sort of kind of behind that because uh one of his new ventures is uh, uh cost plus drugs which uh you know of course kind of relies a lot on uh um uh, generics just for kind of offer the uh the cheapest drugs and uh um you know from the little sort of poking around I've uh um I've done others have done you know the the, the cost plus drugs does just seem to just kind of offer the cheapest uh, um cheapest drugs even even cheaper than uh, um you, know, you can sort of find uh, on insurance and in a lot of cases. So, uh, you know, they've got uh, um, this uh, um, mutual incentive that sort going of to make these uh, um, ideas succeed and the, perhaps they uh, perhaps they can. OK, so I'll ask the unpopular
0: question here. <laughs> sure. um, AAM has done public relations campaigns before trying to build support for, you know, for their positions and kind of generate some buzz about themselves and so forth did you sense a lot of enthusiasm for, for this one when you, when they were kind of rolling it out down there or, you know, I mean, I know they're asking for videos kind of on the, you know, like you said, the things you take for granted. I mean, do you, did you get the impression that there would, there were people interested in recording those kinds of things and putting them up there?
1: I mean, I think the, um, the, the association leadership and the, um, you know, sort of the, the, the most active, uh, um, members are pretty excited about it. I, you know, I do, you know, think as these things go, it's uh, it's well thought out and there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of kind of effort behind it. It's not sort of, you know, like a new uh, tagline, which uh, I guess last year they were, uh, you know, remarkably generic, which I, I thought was a great tagline, but that didn't really sort of kind of go uh, go anywhere or even through sort of a few years back when they changed their name to AAM and sort of kind of, nothing sort of, kind of much uh, came of that. But th- this seems to be a real effort to um, not just uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, create a uh, um, uh, buzz, but actually sort kind of sort kind of, sort of really sort kind of connect with people in a uh, um in a meaningful way. i mean the 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 challenge will be uh, doing it through kind of I don't you know, you know, uh, even through kind of the 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 biggest uh, um and best uh, um you know uh, um companies in, in America often sort of kind of, uh, you know, launch flops, you know, sort of to the uh, mm-hmm. the Amazon Fire Phone, or there's probably a more recent example that I can't uh, come up with on the fly. But uh, um, not everything uh, works out. And obviously, this is not going to be the most fine, well-financed uh, um, public relations campaign in uh, um, in history. But it, it seems to be uh, um, something that uh, um, there's uh, um, a good deal of uh, um, excitement around around people that are going to have to carry it out. So I think that's a uh, um, that's a good sign. I did not see a uh, an abundance of videos being recorded uh, um, afterwards. Uh, so uh, you know, it is a um, I think sort of a to be honest, sort of a a tough ask in this fact that sort of you have to sort of, kind of uh, share something personal about yourself. And uh, you know, while that sort of is uh, well designed to create the emotional connection, to sort of kind of I don't know if uh, everyone wants to put out sort of kind of into the uh, into the internet for sort of kind of some uh, um, some details like that about their uh, their personal lives. So that's sort kind of the, um, the other uh, drawback uh, um, to it. So, uh, um, you know, there is a, um, even if the, work to kind of, you know, say like, you know, there would be, you know, hundreds of thousands of videos uh, um, recorded to so kind of even, even if they got to that stage, you know, you're kind of where, where do those, you know, uh, copious videos for sort of get them in terms of, sort of kind of policy changes, there's still many steps beyond that, but uh, even getting to sort of step, uh, Step one is going to be a challenge for them, but I think they've uh, they've at least got an idea that they think really camps are going to make a difference, and the uh, the uh, the question will be can they execute on it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's, you know generating the buzz is one thing, but you know making that resonate into things you want upon Capitol Hill, particularly, is is something completely different. So yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. Um, you know, what was your read on kind of the generics industry in general after this conference? You know, kind of like the the state of the industry, so to speak.
1: You know, I have to say honestly, the state of the industry is is not good. It uh, um, uh, you know, there was a a, a real um sense of uh um uh, stress uh, this year as opposed to uh, last year's. I mean, we 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 skipped a few years in COVID, and then sort of kind of uh, um. Last year when I went, I think everyone was just, we're going kind to of thrilled to be back together. And uh, just the excitement of sort of, kind of this was many people's first, uh, you know, sort of trip out from, uh, you know, under whatever sort of, kind of uh, you know, lockdown or shelter in place they had sort of kind of uh, imposed upon themselves uh, with uh, um, with COVID. It was sort of kind of back to uh, a more business as usual uh, vibe and just sort of kind of the, uh, the energy of sort of seeing people they hadn't seen in years and uh, that kind of thing. And th- this year, there was just, uh, I think, a realization that sort of kind of there's a a lot of profound market pressures on them that they, um, you know, need to figure out a way to uh, to handle, and uh, and so that was sort of kind of the um, the vibe. And uh, um, obviously, it's sort of this, uh, um, this 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 uh, this uh, take for granted uh, or for granted, I guess, or they're, they're hashtagging it uh, campaign is a way uh, to uh, to address that, but it uh, is also a uh, um, uh, acknowledgement that they are in something of a crisis in terms of, sort of kind of what they. Uh, what they need to achieve to uh, to make the, uh, the 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 business model as it is uh, sustainable?
0: Yeah, no, it certainly is an industry um, and, and a group, you know, for that matter. AAM in general is is kind of in flux right now. I mean, AAM still looking for a new permanent CEO, and in addition to helping the industry kind of adapt to, uh, you know, like you said, all the the impact of price negotiations and all this other. Um, all these other things that are kind of, you know, existential threats, um, you know, going forward. So, yeah, this will be, uh, you know, something to watch closely, um, you know, as as we, uh, you know, it, over the next several months as, you know, kind of uh, people start to come out of that, you know, or start to, uh, you know, decide how they move forward. Next up is a topic I enjoy, FDA advisory committee reform. Sarah, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf gave some more details on the changes he wanted to see in that area.
2: Yeah, you know, Califf um, seems like one big thing he's pushing, and I think some of his other sort of senior deputies, if you will, is thinking about how to do more advisory committee meetings that focus on, you know, drug agnostic issues. So, you know, topics that would affect a range of drugs essentially, you know, regular, regulatory topics or scientific topics um, where they might want advice that would, you know, not just affect one drug product um, and, you know, maybe would affect sort of development um, earlier on in programs. So instead of bringing products, you know, once they've already had an application to FDA um, and, you know, you have to think about them in relation to whether they're getting, uh, should be getting approval or not, you know, figuring out what kind of advice FDA should be giving companies in terms of how to actually, you know, maybe complete their phase three trials or so forth. Um, it it seems like one of the reasons to me why Califf, um thinks this is a good way to go is because he feels like when you have these public advisory committees and you, um, you know, there are these like up or down votes, the public gets very focused on them. And sometimes he feels like that people kind of miss sort of, the main, I guess, messages or advice or the nuance of the meeting in that way. So I thought that was interesting that, like, in some respects, it seems like part of this is, like, they just don't like how, what happens when the focus, you know, ends up being on the votes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think also, you know, FDA um, at the same meeting, you know, Peter Mark spoke and, you know, he also, I think, talked about it as kind of like a you know, having more of these types of meetings also kind of help float all boats in that, you know, you're you're getting more applicable advice to a lot of um applications, you know, and so FDA is maybe getting the most bang for its buck for its time in some ways. Um, as and so are companies. Although I, I you know, I think I would hope that people like who follow the pink sheets advisory committee coverage kind of realize that oftentimes even within a very product specific meeting, I think they're you tend to you can take lessons right from what happens and apply it to other drug applications but you know fga i think is thinking more about pushing some of these meetings up that doesn't mean that um you know caliph said like they're never gonna need product specific you know meetings and votes um particularly when you know maybe they're less sure of whether they should or should not approve it but um you know, I think companies would find that particularly interesting and, and a different way to go about it. Um, he was talking about this actually, I guess, a couple of days after FDA held an advisory committee meeting for a GSK cancer drug, where they held the advisory committee very early on in the process. Um, the company wants to do accelerated approval, and they were basically seeking feedback from the, the advisory committee meeting on kind of how to both like design the trial for the accelerated approval, what the confirmatory study should look like. And so I think that was sort of held up as like maybe a model of what these meetings could potentially look like to some degree. Again, that was sort of drug specific, but um, you know, I think the FDA cancer folks who spoke at that meeting seemed like they also held it because they thought it would be um you know, helpful to other, this meeting in particular would be helpful to other sponsors. Um, the other thing I think Calif talked about, which um, I, I know lots of pink sheet reporters and other reporters have often griped about as well, which is like these advisory committee meetings, you know, they're usually, you know, a half day to a day. And you spend a lot of time kind of going back over what's in the FDA sort of preview documents for the meeting, what's in the sponsor preview documents for the meeting, Um, oftentimes like you get to the part where the the committee needs to do the discussion and debate or ask questions, and that seems like the most rushed or the most cramped for time. Um, And that's really why everybody's there, right? I mean, I, I sort of understand why from sort of a public meeting perspective, you can't sort of assume everybody comes into the meeting having done all the background reading already, but at the same time, like, you know, sometimes, You've been to meetings I mean certainly with the COVID vaccines where it's not just like you're seeing presentations from the preview documents you're seeing presentations that we've seen from like five other advisory committees already <laughs> right and then <laughs> The thing that where the, the the important part where you really need to get this advice and get this information gets the short shrift. And I mean, that just doesn't seem to be a good use of anybody's time or resources. And I think Caleb sort of acknowledged she hasn't figured out <laughs> how to do that. But I think it would definitely be valuable if they could figure out a better way to do that, because, you know, that's why they're holding these meetings. That's why everybody's there. No one's really there to see fda repeat a powerpoint presentation that you know people have seen three or four times before
1: yeah i wonder if yep. we we'll get to some uh, format where it's uh, like a uh, argument before the supreme court where for sort of kind of uh, fda starts off uh, you know with their slide deck and then they start uh, getting interrupted by uh advisory committee members with questions i guess it would uh, require a much more sort of kind of adversarial uh, approach by the advisor committee as we sort of kind of to uh, Start interrogating them right away, but uh, I think you're right, Sarah. I mean, it's kind of there are, you know, there, there, we may just need to sort of kind of uh, or FDA may just need to start assuming uh, a level of background knowledge, uh, you know, perhaps uh, even from the advisory committee members themselves uh, on this kind of what this stuff uh, this stuff is, and uh, you know, that's everybody in the room has already read the briefing documents and uh, just kind of go from uh, go from there as we kind of move right into the uh, uh, discussion in a uh, more uh, direct way.
0: Yeah, I think we've all, I think, Sarah, you and I have actually had this debate where, you know, we said, like, why don't they just start assuming, start assuming everybody has read the briefing document and go right to clarifying questions for the sponsor and the FDA and then go into committee discussion. I mean, you could get these done, these meetings done in, you know, a couple hours as opposed to like an entire day. Um, But, you know, I mean, I'm sure that there, you know, there's, uh, you know, administrative procedure, type, you know, rules and so forth where they have to create a a record and, you know, that, you know, kind of prevent them from being able to streamline le- these a whole lot. But, you know, I mean, when I, I when I read those comments, I wanted to hit like the proverbial like button because I, I have <laughs> the same gripe about a lot of these meetings. I mean, and in some cases I've been sitting there where. We've gone through the entire day and before they're before they vote, people like get up and leave because they have to go co- catch flights, you know, be, so they missed the part that, you know, the FDA wants them there for, <laughs> essentially. And, you know, it, it's yeah, it's some, some of it's crazy. I mean, we've you know, I've been I've been at advisory committees that have gone 12 hours or more. And by the end, you're just like you could tell everybody's just exhausted, and they don't want to speak; they just want to vote and go home. And you know, <laughs> and that's not the point of of all of this. So, yeah, I I I I agree that some streamlining is is uh, is in in order. I just don't know. I, I'm not like the legal or like the administrative, you know, procedure act scholar that would be able to tell them. Yeah, you can get around some of those, you know, the rules or whatever's in place to kind of have a complete record if you don't have the obligatory sponsor presentation and, uh, you know, FDA presentation that takes each take a couple of
1: hours. Well, maybe they just right. need to hire some auctioneers or something to sort kind of, you know, blast through the, uh, the FDA slide deck <laughs> and that's for kind of a super fast uh, way, uh, you know, at the beginning, uh, um, at the beginning of, you know, 45 minutes or something like that, if that's, if that's the issue. But, uh, the,
0: the other thing that, that comes up too, is that sponsors will often use their presentation to rebut things that were in the FDA briefing because, you know, in the meeting, because they can't do it because they, they see the briefing after their own briefing has been submitted. So, you know, that you have that issue too. So yeah, it, it, it makes it complicated to kind of, you know, get rid of some of the, the talking that, you know, a lot of times isn't necessary.
2: And I was gonna say, if it, the question is like, if the only way for FDA really to get the discussion it wants is to make the meetings longer, <laughs> I don't know how <laughs> popular that would be. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I do wonder if like, unfortunately, that could be a, a possibility, like, you know, we've been saying it's not clear, because of sort of the purpose of public meetings. And again, you sort of have to assume a certain, this is for, you know, it, it's for FDA, it's for the companies, you know, but it's also for, right, sort of the general public to a degree. Um, so you can't necessarily, again, sort of assume people have come to it with all the background, you know, depending on what the assumptions they're allowed to make then, could they make the meetings longer? I mean, it doesn't, it, it does always frustrate me. Again, you know, you mentioned the people leaving for flights and stuff, but yeah, sometimes like you get time crunched and they're so focused on like wrapping up by five o'clock or five thirty or whatever. And right. And then they basically like cut the meeting off instead of extending it. And again, it's what's the point of having the meeting if you're going to cut off the part that you really need the information about. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, we'll see, I'm sure this is going to take a while um, for FDA to, you know, to figure out. And um, maybe, you know, another thing to think about would be like, if they do, if it's a more drug agnostic meeting, you know, would there be less background in some ways? And would that change, you know, how the timing works? I don't know. Another thing, um, I I think the reason why Caleb wants to go to drug agnostic topics more too seem to be like because he gets frustrated with like who can be on the committee and giving FDA advice because of conflict of interest policies. And he seemed to think that, um, you know, doing non-application specific uh, meetings would help them, you know, get just a better advisory committee compilation, Um, which is kind of interesting because I'm sure there are some people who heavily focus on conflict of interest that won't be thrilled with
0: that. Yeah. Another thing I saw in your story was that, um, I guess, during this uh, meeting where he was asked about this, he mentioned that the center directors are the ones who make the call on whether or not to have an in-person advisory committee meeting. And I'm curious now if sponsors are going to start lobbying agency officials now that we know they can – the FDA is – able to have in-person meetings again and they're even equipping, you know, some of the smaller rooms to be able to go back to them. I'm just curious if, you know, people are going to start lobbying because they um, they know who's kind of making the decision on that.
2: (laughs) I I guess it's certainly possible. I mean, I think Caleb in that comment also emphasized again, and um, he said this before and we read about it, you know, that like FDA gets sort of like a, I don't know if a mixed message is the right word, but, you know, sponsors are oftentimes are telling them like, they want a little bit of both, right? There are times when they they want in-person, there are times when they don't. So like, I think FDA is also kind of dealing with that dynamic of, you know, it's not a 100% push to revert. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was basically sort of saying like, okay, well, stop, don't, you know, Bug me about this. Bug Peter Marks or bug you know, bug Matrussia <laughs> um, you know, or you know whoever maybe underneath them <laughs> gets to decide. I think was a little bit of what he was doing there. But I think also I've just noticed a lot and because I've happened to like I think hear Caleb speak at a bunch of meetings recently. Um, he seems to to want to make clear in uh, many different topics and directions. Like, look, I'm the commissioner. I have certain powers. I you know, and so forth. But also there's a lot like specifically when it comes to like application specific stuff like I don't weigh in on and there's a lot that's delegated and like I don't know, he seems to be doing a, a a lot of work, not just like on this topic, which I'm not sure is as important to people, whether he's the one outside of the industry, but like to the general public, I'm not sure it matters so much whether he's the one making the call and in in-person meetings or not. He seems to be doing a lot of work to like be reminding people like of when a commissioner does or doesn't weigh in on various FDA decisions. I just noticed that as sort of a trend.
0: Yeah, he was even in his first tenure, he made a big deal with it was with the Teplerson decision where he said political appointees shouldn't be making drug approval decisions. So that was why that was one of the reasons why he reverted back to what then Cedar director Janet Woodcock had decided on. Um, It's Heplerson. So I I think it's that that whole separation of between what the career staff does over there and what the political the political appointees do over there. Finally, we're going to go back to Sarah for more comments that Caleb made recently. This time he was talking about expanding emergency use use authorization powers outside of COVID.
2: Yeah, so he was asked by, um, you know, the interviewer, Kate Rossin, who writes with a pink sheet often about, you know, is there any potential to think about emergency use outside of sort of the COVID-like pandemic type situation? Um, You know, his remarks were a bit wishy-washy, maybe I would say, (laughs) because he sort of started talking about like EUA and accelerated approval at the same time. I mean, but he, he generally seemed to make this, his emphasis was sort of on like and I, I think the reason why, to some extent, he brought up accelerated approval because he was saying like, yes, there are other there are other categories of, you know, diseases or um, where we need more treatments and we maybe need them faster than we're getting now. And, um, you know, FDA has other pathways that might help us get there. But if we do that, um, we need industry to really, you know, like in EUAs and accelerated approval, both have a sort of, requirement I guess to some extent that you kind of keep studying the product and get that you know the the more assured results later on and you know he's you know kind of has been on a an FDA sort of pounding on industry and saying you guys actually need to you know fulfill that second half and FDA's obviously been under scrutiny for making sure industry does that so he's basically saying like you know maybe this is a possibility but you know we we really can't do that until we get more you know assurances from industry that they'll really do that second half. If we if we speed your product to market, you'll really then get us the research we need on the other side. One thing that's, I think, interesting about EUAs is, like, unlike accelerated approval, it's much easier for FDA to just pull an EUA, right, if you if there was an issue. Um, and that didn't really come up here, but I was thinking about that afterwards. Um, at the same time, though, like, you know, Califf was um, really seemed particularly interested in thinking about, like, for sort of the opioid emergency and the, you know, need for non-opioid pain medicine and also t- tobacco cessation products. Um, it's not actually clear that FDA, even if they wanted to, or Calif wanted to, could issue EUAs in those types of cases. It's most likely they couldn't. Um, the EUA authority is very specific to certain types of, you know, events. <laughs> So the law, in terms, would probably have to be written differently to, you know, use an EUA outside of, you know, certain types of threats. But I mean, the the um, whole—it was just interesting to me that this came up because, kind of, early on in writing about sort of how, you know, the EUAs in the first sort of year of COVID um, kind of impacted everything. I think there was this sense that we have in sort of an, an American public where the general sense is people want more options fast particularly if you know they're in a situation where the disease is very you know life threatening or just you know leads to high morbidity in some way so i mean people flagged this early on that they could see a lot of like public push for the same flexibility given to covid um to be given in in other places and calif certainly um i think in his remarks, acknowledged that, you know, he feels this sort of vibe from the, you know, American sort of society of people willing to take risks um, in that way, which is, again, a sort of another theme I've noticed um, from him hearing him repeat claims like that over the past few weeks and um, seems like to be impacting how he's thinking about, you know, FDA's role in approving drugs.
0: Yes, it's interesting you say that people are willing, he feels like people are willing to take risks that would be, you know, inherent to an EUA because throughout the whole, the saga of the COVID vaccines, we've heard just as loud people saying, you're going too fast. Why haven't you done a full approval of this yet? Why haven't you done full clinical trials of these vaccines yet? You know, all all those kinds of arguments as well. So you wonder if you know, the side that if if the wave side in favor of the way prevails, if we'll hear that argument, whether it's for opioids or, you know, whatever other area he just, you know, they decide to apply it in if they if they go that right, they go that way.
1: I think there's an important uh, distinction to make between sort of, kind of public sentiment on uh, vaccines, uh, not just because they include uh, scary needles, but because they are given to people sort of who aren't yet sick. And if you're actually suffering from a disease that you find, you know, debilitating or you know, life-threatening and scary in some uh, some way, I think you're pretty much willing to do whatever you think might be available to uh, um, to try and address that. Whereas, uh, you know, sort of some theoretical risk about uh, um, an infectious disease that you do not have is uh, a little different in terms of sort of the public sentiment. I think there's a uh, a real high tolerance among people uh, to. Take you know sort of potentially risky or unproven medications if they're actually sick with something that they they want to get better from, than as opposed to sort are of kind of the uh, the more prophylactic uh, use of the EUA we saw with the uh, the COVID vaccines. But that's a good point, uh, Derek. It is a uh, interesting if you think about sort of kind of the uh, the classic uh, Republican critique of uh, FDA's. It's for of kind of they. Uh, um, you know, conservatives feel that they the the agency is too conservative. That it sort of, kind of takes too long. That it sort of has too many requirements. That it sort of kind of, uh, you know, kind of holds up uh, innovation. But now, sort of, kind of there is this uh, um, meaningful wing of the Republican Party that sort of thinks that uh, FDA went uh, went too fast that they didn't study things quickly enough. That they sort of cut too many uh, regulatory corners when it came to the uh, the COVID vaccine. So there's sort of that that that, that tension there now.
2: So. Yeah, I tend to I guess sort of agree with Matt that. Um Vaccines are sort of a the exception to the rule. <laughs> um, and that right, if you're talking about something that's not um preventative, people think about this a lot differently. But it, it is interesting because I, I, I do sometimes wonder if like enough people like appreciate depending on their situation that um there you know that there can be downsides to, you know, that push for, you know less evidence and being willing to take risks, you know, that sometimes, you know, you end up having, a, having, I think people sort of see that as like, there's all upside, no downside. And some yes. seems, seems harder to convey to them that there could be a downside that actually, you know, you could, you know, make whatever amount of time you have left much more, you know, sort of uncomfortable <laughs> um, than it would have been mm-hmm. otherwise, you know. So, I, and I think that's like, something that bioethicists and other people try to sort of convey and is important. And I think it's part of why in some ways, you know, we have an FDA, right? I'm not sure their their job is just to sort of be responsive to public sentiment, right? Without regard to sort of, again, the benefits, risks, and science. Um, because if their job was just to be responsive to public sentiment in that way, we'd probably have a whole different um, slew of drugs approved in the U.S.
0: <laughs> well, especially since public sentiment would change really quickly if like these really bad adverse events popped up after they approved something that public sentiment said they should approve right away, you know, earlier than, than normal. So, you know, (laughs) you can't be, yeah, you can't, you can't be responsive to like the wave of public opinion because it changes on a dime. So, (laughs) well, thank you for that, Sarah. That's very, uh, it's very interesting. Um, by the way, before we close, I said today was February 23rd. It's actually February 24th. Sorry about that. I just want to make sure we got the date correct. But that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.